Mark, that's such a great, that's so true what you said. I really wanted Mark to pray today because this time yesterday he was sitting in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, watching Oklahoma beat Texas with a lot of help from Alabama, uh, <laughs> who gave them a quarterback. Then they'd left after the game and drove home and got here at 5 o'clock this morning, and they're in worship. Great example. Great example. It's any wonder I love him being my chairman of deacons. That's so good. So good. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The 8th chapter of Romans. As we begin to move into a passage, a lengthy passage, I want to introduce this morning, but will in no way exhaust this morning. As a matter of fact, Hopefully, by the time I get ready to preach some Christmas messages, Advent messages, I'll be finished with Romans chapter 8, okay? So just hang on. There's so much here in these, these last sections as, as Paul makes a, a bit of a change of direction, at least a little bit, in his discussion in Romans chapter 8, but, but it certainly fits with everything else that he has said up until this point. I want you to hear the word, hear it carefully, starting in verse 28. Most people know that one. Most people quote that one. Most people quote that one out of context and sometimes even out of, out of right wording. But they quote it over and over. They like it because it sounds good. And we know, Paul says, and we know, that's an important word, know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now that's the way ESV says it. I really kind of like the way uh, the New American Standard says it a little better. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The emphasis is on God and God's work that we'll see as we move through this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Uh, graciously give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. To which we ought to give a hearty thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for the great truth of this passage. This whole passage is dealing with what we would, would I suppose, call security. I, I titled the sermon, Now That's Security, or how did I say that? Yeah, Now That's Security. Talking about all of these verses moving together, working together to show the, the security that God has given to every believer. Now, realize that in the first part of this chapter, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about how the Holy Spirit works in us in our weaknesses, in our suffering, in our struggles, in order to help us know how to pray, in order to help us pray when we don't even feel like praying. When we're groaning, He groans with us. I mean, it's just a matter of God at work within us in such a magnificent way by His Holy Spirit alive in us that, that all again we can say is thank you, Lord, for the provision that you've made for our being able to live and walk through and walk in the Christian life. Because apart from that, we would be helpless and hopeless. We would be weak and, and unnecessarily struggling in this world in more ways than we already do. But in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul really soars, if you will, to some of the most sublime heights that's unequaled anywhere else in the New Testament. This last passage, especially the last part of this chapter, that we'll get to somewhere around December 1st, the last part of this chapter is the Apostle Paul basically just giving doxology, giving praise, giving glory to God, asking some rhetorical questions, and then answering them very clearly. None of those can be true because our God is caring for us. We sang songs this morning that talked about that. We talked about praising His name and the Lord is our salvation and, and love divine, all love's excelling. He talks about separate, not being separated from the love of God in Christ in this passage and, and how great thou art and that great old hymn that just expresses the greatness and the glory of God. I mean, that is, is in reality why we're here and why we gather and why we even form a covenant community. But in these verses, after, after really coming from chapter 5 on, the Apostle Paul has tried to lay out the Christian life as clearly as he could and can with us and, and what our benefits are, what our, what our privileges are in Christ. He, he said in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he said that we now have peace with God. If we are in Christ, we have peace with God. There once was enmity with God. We were once walking in our own selfish ways. We were walking in our sin. Our sin was controlling us and ruling over us. But now we have made peace with God. God has said the war is over between us and I've declared you to be at peace with me. That's a glorious privilege for a believer. We're not, we're not fighting with God anymore. We're not, we're not struggling against God anymore. We have been given by God's grace and by the Lord Jesus Christ peace with God. In the last part of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6 through verse 23, the Apostle Paul talked about not only do we have peace with God, but we have union with Christ. We are in Christ. We, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And there is this, there is this unity, this oneness. It's a mystical union. We don't fully understand it completely, but that does not make it any less real or any less true. God is at work to unite us with Christ by His Spirit and to give us a union with Him that lives out itself in our daily walk. We have peace with God. We have union with Christ. In verses 7, 1 through 25, Paul made it clear that we have freedom from the law. We have freedom from the law. 
We no longer walk by the law. We no longer live trying to to live up to something in order to please God. But by His grace, He has written His law upon our hearts and upon our minds. And, And while we still struggle with sin in this world, and while we'll still find ourselves stumbling and falling from time to time, and and some of us more than others, perhaps, from time to time. But we find out that in reality, we're not bound to the law. We don't have to say, oh, now I've got to do, you know, 30 things in order to get back right with God. We are right with God because we have peace with God, because we have union with Christ, and the law no longer makes us its slave. We're now doulosses of Christ. We're now slaves of Christ. And that's a good slavery. And in verses 8, Uh, chapter 8 1 through 27 that we just finished up last week in those verses the apostle paul talks about life in the spirit that that we're not only in christ but we also have life in the spirit and the spirit dwells within us and now in this last part of this chapter the apostle paul under the divine inspiration of the holy spirit doesn't just deal with what happened in our life uh, in time and space recently, doesn't deal with just what God is doing in our life right now by giving us the Holy Spirit, but the Apostle Paul kind of soars out into all of eternity and begins to talk about what God has done for you and me, the believer, in eternity past and stretches it all 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 the way into eternity future. And God said, this is the great cosmic plan. This is the great cosmic purpose of God. And I want you as a believer to see it because it's only in understanding that plan and that purpose that you can have real security. It's only in understanding that great plan and that great purpose that you can be freed from the from moralism, that you can be free from thinking you've got to somehow work up enough brownie points to please God. But by understanding the, the whole totality of eternity past to eternity future, you see the glory of Christ at work in every single believer. I think what Paul is wanting us to see in these verses And like I say, we'll be in them for a while, so I'll repeat this over and over probably, but I want you to see this, that that his burden, his desire, his purpose in verse 28 through 39 is to show us the unchangeable, irresistible, invincible purpose of God. And by this purpose, and, and in that purpose, the eternal security of every single believer. Every believer. Security in Christ. And security that lasts forever. Uh, he, he has three different sets of fives here. We're going to kind of look at those as the big picture today, and then we'll come back and break them down in weeks to come. As a matter of fact, verse 28, we'll, prob- we'll spend several weeks alone in that verse. But, but in verse 28, he starts out by talking about five unshakable convictions that he has. Five things that he knows are sure He starts out with, we know, and I'll come back to that. In verses 29 and 30, he continues with five undeniable affirmations. He said, I have these convictions, and based on these convictions, here are some affirmations that I make before the living God and before you. And then he concludes with what I would call five unanswerable questions, which nobody can challenge, nobody can contradict, but but he just expresses them that we might have an understanding of the the scope and the power and the glory of this God we serve. See, too often, and we've talked about this numerous times, but too often we kind of put God over here in a box. He's just a box that's a part of our life. And, And when we need God, we go open the box and say, God, come out right quick and help me in this condition, help me in this situation. But 
But other times when things are going to well, Lord, just stay in your box. I can handle this. Stay where, stay where I've put you, and I'll take care of life until I need you again, then I'll come running back to your box. And Paul wants us to see in this that that is not a Christianity that is a biblical, that is not a Christianity that is, is any way uh, scriptural, and that's not a Christianity that will give you security and, and give you some conquering truth, as Paul talks about, in this life, in the here and the now. God is not something you add to your life. Christ is not something that you just sort of accept and say, I accept you along with all my other stuff. And, and all this other stuff is still very important to me. And Lord, I want you to be important too, but just not more important than all my stuff. You know, And, and that's how many people tend to try to live the Christian life. Jesus, I really want you around. I really want to know you when I want to, when I need you, when it's convenient. But in, in those first unshakable convictions that Paul gives in verse 28, he says, and we know. I mean, the word he uses there is such a strong word. It, it's, it's not a word that says we hope or, or this is something we're thinking through and we sort of surmise. He's not saying this is something that we think is going to be a reality. He says, listen, we know this. We know this because Christ has declared it. We know this because he has died and is raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We know these great truths. We know these great convictions to be absolutely so. And then he tells what those five truths are. He says, first, we know that God works. Now, I don't mean God works, as you would say, my car works. It's, it's operational. But really, he's talking about here, God is at work in our lives. That's one thing we know, that if we're in Christ and we are a true believer, then God is at work in us. And Paul says, that is an undeniable conviction that I have. I know that God is at work. He's, he's at work in my weaknesses. He's at work in my suffering. He's at work wherever I am. He is at work in my life. I know that is a reality, Paul says. Second thing he says is that God is at work for, for the good of his people. He said, we know this, that, that God is working all things together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, being himself wholly good, completely good, all righteous, his works are all expressions of his goodness and are calculated to advance his people's good. And I would say that he's taught, Paul is thinking about not just the good times, but those times of suffering that he's talked about earlier in this chapter, those times of moaning, those times of groaning. The good is the goal uh, of all his providential dealings with us and it's our ultimate well-being which is namely our final salvation we do have to understand this that we're not promised that everything on this earth is always going to be good we, we, we can't we can't even begin to fall into that trap that a prosperity gospel would say that if, if you're really in Christ then then everything's going to be all right. You're, you'll be healthy, and you'll be wealthy, and you'll be wise. And, and whatever you want, whatever you ask, whatever you demand of God, God has to do it. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul has already said, we're going to struggle. We're going to face suffering. And, and we, we look at this, this month as we think about 
Reformation Month and Reformation Day coming and, and talk about it in those terms toward the end of the month, we recognize that many of those who lived through that time gave their lives for the gospel. They were put at the stake and burned. Some were strangled and burned afterwards. Some were just burned alive, uh, like John Huss. Others were like, like uh, Wycliffe and Tyndall. Wycliffe was buried, was killed, buried, and then dug up a few years later and burned at that point. I mean, the martyrs went through a lot because of their faith in Christ. They would not agree with some of the preaching of the contemporary church of Jesus Christ. They'd say, it didn't work that way for us, but God was at work. It wasn't all perfect in our life. We didn't have life of ease and comfort, but God was at work in our lives. And God was using that which was happening to us for his glory and our good. So, so we know that God is at work, and we know that God is at work for the good of his people, ultimately our final salvation. The third affirmation Paul makes here, the third uh, conviction, if you will, is that God works for good in all things. The Greek word, that, Greek word there is ta panta. I used that a few Wednesday nights ago in talking about creation. When, when the New Testament talks about God's creation and what God has created, it always uses the word ta panta, all things. It's, it's not that God created something and then out of that came everything else. It's sort of self-created. It's not that God created uh, you know, some things. It's not even that he created most things, but the scriptures are clear that God created all things on this earth and the earth included in it and the universe in which the earth exists. God created all things. There's no partiality. There's no partial nature to God's created power. Neither is there in what Paul is saying here is, our, is his firm conviction. We know that God is working for our good in all things. So all things there that Paul is talking about must include the sufferings of verse 17 and the groanings of verse 23. All things. But then Paul says, fourthly, that God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. For the good of those who love Him. Now John makes clear in his epistle, 1 John, that, that we love Him because He first loved us. The Apostle Paul makes that clear at several places in his writings, that, it's, that we love God because of His magnificent grace and love that He poured out on us. And, and when we respond with the love that He has given us for Him, then we love God. We, we have a we have more than just an emotion for God or an affection for God. We have a passion for God. And, and, and Paul says, we know that God's working all things together for good to those who love Him. Now, we'll take one sermon and look at what that means. What does it mean to love God? One whole sermon. And it's going to be sort of a Puritan-like sermon. It's going to be about 28 points to it, okay? So if you take notes, be ready, all right, to write fast. And finally, in these unshakable convictions, the Apostle Paul says, fifth, those who love God are also described as those who have been called according to His purpose. Not loving God and doing our own thing, but loving God because of His grace and recognizing that He is doing and working out His purpose and leading us in His purpose because He's called us to that purpose. You know, I took leadership courses years ago, and they used to always say in those, you've you got to determine what is your purpose in life. 
What is your purpose? Why are you here? What do you want to accomplish? Uh, you know, and I'm, as I'm older now and I look back, I realize that some of the things I wrote down back then were really quite foolish. They really were. Well, I want to be successful at this. I want to do this. I want to go here. I want to go. You know, all these purposes were so mundane. Paul says, here's the purpose for every believer. I don't care whether it's your purpose at work or wherever you live. Here's your purpose. Your purpose is to know what the purpose of God is because you've been called to it and follow that purpose and be obedient to that purpose in everything you do. Whether it's involved in the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, whether it's involved to go to the, uh, the, the nations, whether it's to be a missionary there at your job, whether it's to be a missionary, wherever you are, you are called according to his purpose. So, so these are the five truths that Paul starts out talking about God, the things that we know. We don't always understand what God is doing, let alone do we always welcome it. Let me tell you, there have been times in my life, there have been times in my ministry when God has been doing certain things and, and you know, I, I didn't understand why they were going the way they did and I didn't understand why this was happening or that was happening. And, and even less than that, did I welcome it being there. I wanted it done with and done away with. But God was using that to shape me and mold me. He was using that as a, as a chisel. I used to say as a knife to carve away, but wood's far too soft to describe me. He was using it as a chisel to, to kind of chisel away some places that need to be dealt with. We don't always understand it. We don't always welcome it. Nor are we always told that he is at work for our comfort. Never in Scripture. Does Paul say or Jesus say or Peter say or John say or any other writer of the New Testament say, you know, just, just chill because God's working for your comfort. So just chill out and enjoy it. No, it's always that God is working for His glory and for your good in the midst of whatever you're going through. So those are, are five undeniable, unshakable convictions. Then he comes to five undeniable affirmations. Now these get into His sovereignty. These get into His work of salvation. These get into to things that, quite honestly, many believers in our day would just rather not even talk about. Someone has passed over it. It's an introduction to chapter 9, if you will, but, but it, it, some get bogged down in chapter 8. But he says, here are five undeniable affirmations. First comes the reference to, for, the, for we know this, those whom he foreknew. A reference to God foreknowing people. And, and a lot of times we want to read that and say, those whom God foresaw. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying those who, Paul, who God foreknew, the Hebrew word for knowing or to know or to, to foreknow is a word that really can be translated in many cases, uh, love, for love, for, 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 saw, for loved and foreknew. You know, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you've got a passage there that says, uh, in the beginning God created, you know, the heavens and the earth and God created man and, and then it wasn't good for man to be alone so he created Eve and, and out of the, the rib of man and, and there, was, there was woman and, and Adam said, whoa, man, that's what I've been looking for as, as Eve came along and that's how she got her name, woman, whoa, man, anyway. Uh, and then it says, I love this statement, 
And Adam knew Eve, and she conceived a son. Adam knew Eve. Now, that does not mean that Adam walked up to Eve at the creation and said, Hi, I'm Adam, and she said, Hi, I'm Eve. They knew each other then, and boom, she was expecting. Didn't happen that way, doesn't happen that way now. Didn't happen that way then. He knew her. He loved her. He had an intimate relationship with her. And through that intimate relationship, she bore a child. When God knows people, he watches over them. Uh, you know, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, go to Israel. It says, and God knew Israel uh, when he called them. So God knew them, and because of that, he protected them. He didn't say he knew the Egyptians. didn't say he knew the uh, the Babylonians didn't say he knew the, the uh, Hittites and all the others throughout the land or the Philistines. He didn't, he didn't say he knew any of those, but he knew Israel because he had an intimate relationship with them. So Paul says, those whom he foreknew. Secondly, says, those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined, become conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's a purpose in his knowing a people that we might become in the image of Christ, that that we might be shaped and molded into the image of Christ. And so God has placed a call upon our life. He has placed a love upon our life. And he is predestined, predetermined that we're going to be like Christ. Well, We're going to deal with that at length. The third affirmation is those whom he predestined, those he called. Those whom he loved, those whom he those whom he uh, uh, knows, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, he called. He called by name. Just as much as Lazarus being called out of the grave. Lazarus come forth, God called those who are involved in this, what the Puritans call the golden chain of salvation. And then fifthly, those he justified, excuse me, those he called, he justified. That is made right with him, declared them righteous. We talked about that in Romans already, Romans 3, 4, 5. The justification that comes when God declares us covered in the righteousness of Christ. And then fifthly, those he justified, he also glorified. Now Paul uses a past tense there. And, and yet here we are, those who are in Christ, who are not very glorified yet, are we? I don't look very glorified. And I know you. You don't look very glorified either. Glorified means totally without sin. Glorified means totally in the likeness of Christ. Glorified means not only living out from under the penalty of sin and the power of sin being diminished, but it means the presence of sin is completely gone from your life. Anybody here want to make that claim? Then why could Paul say, those whom he justified, them he also glorified? In the third part of that chapter, uh, third part of verse 30. It's this, for this reason. It's because in God's eyes, it is a reality. It's where the security comes in. In God's eyes, if you have been called, if you have been justified, you are going to be glorified. It's as though you already were. It's the perfect past tense. It's the present past tense, if you will, that says God is working in you in such a in such an unbelievable way, in such a glorious way, that it's a reality in the mind of God 
already. So you got, you got five unshakable convictions, you got five undeniable affirmations, and then you got five unanswerable questions. Paul says in, in this passage, he says these nine verses are kind of the concluding formula, if you will, which he's already used three times in, in chapter six and chapter seven, uh, and, and uh, well, twice in chapter six. You know, what then shall we say in response to this? Verse 31. What shall we say about this? What shall we say to these things? And then he asks these questions. One, if God is for us, who's against us? If you've, uh, if you've even had a cursory noticing of the news for the last seven days, you will recognize that there are a lot of people who are against Christianity. And there are a lot of people over in the Middle East that are against Christianity. There are a lot of people over in the Far East that are against Christianity. And there are a lot of people right here in the good old USA that are against Christianity. Now, we're not seeing the persecution they're seeing in the Middle East or the Far East or, 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 or Far West, rather. No, Far East. We're the West. Far East. We're not seeing the persecution that they're seeing there. We're not seeing martyrs being made here in the United States. But, but Christianity is day by day growing, day by day, moment by moment. There's a growing hatred, a growing number of people against Christianity. We're going to talk about that tonight in my class. We're going to look at that and some examples of that as we open those up and see them happening right around us, all around us. Uh, but, but if you know anything about the news, you know there are a lot of people who are against Christianity today and think it ought to just be done away with. Editorial of the New York Times this past week, what's so special about religious freedom? Why would we give religious freedom? We need to take it away. Well, apart from the fact that it was stated in the First Amendment to the Constitution over 230 years ago, uh, but it's, a re it, it's something that's important to this nation. It should be. But let's take it away. You know, there's a lot of people against it. But Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What does that mean? Well, it means, yeah, they're going to come against you. Listen, when Paul wrote this, Rome was against him. When Paul wrote this, the religious uh, establishment in Jerusalem was against him. They wanted him put to death just as much as they wanted Christ put to death. They arrested him. They transported him. They beat him. They, they, they shipwrecked him. They did all sorts of things with Paul because they hated him. They were against him. But Paul said, here's, here's the reality. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't care if they're an emperor. I don't care if they're a king. I don't care if they're a president. I don't care if they're a congress. I don't care if they're a supreme court. I don't care who they are. If, if God is for us, we stand firm because we stand in Him. That's the first question. The second one, he just says, following that, He, that is God the Father, who did not spare His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not now also with Him graciously give us all things? Ta-panta, all things. 
all things pertaining to life and all things pertaining to glory and all things pertaining to knowing him? How will he not give us all things? We don't have to rely upon the government to grant us our rights. We don't have to, we don't have to rely upon the government to say it's okay to meet. If they say you can't meet, God has given us the grace and the glory and the power to do what he has called us to do and to say to the government, well, as for you, you must do what you must do, as Paul and John said to the Roman authorities. But as for us, we must preach Christ. We must worship him. He gave us his son. What more could he give us? And if he gave us his son, we are joint heirs with him. He will give us himself. Question three. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Or who will bring a charge against God's elect, Paul says? It is God who justifies. Let me tell you. Satan will try to bring a charge against you if you belong to Christ. Satan will try to say, but... Yeah, you trusted Christ, but do you remember what happened back there? Do you remember what you did last year or three years ago or before you came to Christ? Do you remember the life you lived that was absolutely degenerate before you came to Christ? Do you really think you can be forgiven for that? You really think you can? Do you really think you can? Yes, thank you. I don't know where that came from, but thank you. Yes. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Listen, it is God who justifies. And if God has justified you, declared you righteous in Christ, clothed you in His, Christus, in His righteousness, then all the, all the accusations that the enemy can bring against you are absolutely for naught. You can say, Satan, leave me alone. Satan, I am standing in Christ Jesus, clothed in his righteousness. Yeah, I'm I'm a pretty bad person at times, and I've been a worse person in the past, but I want you to know that Christ has redeemed me, and God has justified me, and I stand in him today. Forgiven, and you can't bring any charge against me. That's going to preach when I get to that. Question four, who condemns? Who can bring a charge? God justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. Paul's already dealt with that idea before, that Christ is there, and the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, and Christ is now seated at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. I mean, how can we be condemned if Christ died for us and was raised for our life, and we are in Him, if there's that union that He talked about back in chapter 6? How can we even think about being condemned? You cannot be condemned, Paul says, because of the work of the Father. And then that final question. Oh, what a rich one it is in verse 35. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And then he personifies things like tribulation, because he says who, and then he lists these things as though they're persons who are attacking us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Will hard times in your life separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God? How about distress or depression or sickness or persecution? Just because you're persecuted by authorities, just because you're persecuted by some who hate Christ and you represent Christ, uh, shall persecution just cause Christ to say, oh, you're being persecuted, I, I don't love you anymore? No! And it ought not block our understanding that He loves us even in the midst of that. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He says, listen, nothing, nothing shall separate us. And, and here's how He answers all five of those questions. And again, we'll look at it more specifically together but, or separate. But, but here Paul says, no. Verse 37, no, emphatically, no, you know, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, you can't stop there, can you? You say we're more than conquerors, it sounds like, well, we'll just bow up and get strong and flex our muscle and flex our intelligence and We'll be conquerors. No, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Not in any way separate from Christ, not in any way apart from Christ. We are conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors, if you will, through Him who loved us. And this is what I'm sure of. He starts out with, I know, we know. He starts out with, now I am sure of this. That neither death nor life. You can live. And if you live, it ought to be as Paul said to the Galatian Christians. As I, I live, but no longer do I live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh is unto Him. And if I'm living unto Him, dead to self, alive to Christ, then no, life won't separate me from the love of Christ, and neither will death, because Paul said, you know, it's better to, to be absent from this body and be home with the Lord. Man, if, if I die, then I'm out of the body and I'm home with the Lord. Sin is gone. That glorified is no longer a future past tense. It's now a reality past tense that I'm experiencing. Death isn't going to separate me. Life isn't going to separate me. How about angels or rulers? How about things present, my circumstances, or things to come that I don't even know about yet, or powers? Those are probably demonic powers. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing. And that covers a lot, doesn't it? Anything else in all creation. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a glorious conclusion. 
Paul says, I want to tell you these five absolute convictions I have. I want to tell you these five truth statements about God's work and God's sovereignty. And I want to show you these five questions that are unanswerable except they're answered by God. I want you to see all that, Paul says, so that you'll know your security in Christ. So that you'll know you really are secure in Him. You don't have to worry about completely falling away if you're in Christ. Now, do people fall away? Yeah. And and John says in his epistle, they fall away because they never really were of us. They never really knew Christ. They didn't have this security. We're going to talk about what all this means as we work our way through verses 28 through 39 very carefully. But I want you to see the big picture. Because you see, we're going to sing a hymn in a minute as our hymn of commitment and our final hymn of this day. And the title of it is, He Will Hold Me Fast. That hymn most clearly capsulizes what the apostle is saying in this passage. He will hold me fast. You say, but I don't know if I can hold on. Paul says, you don't have to hold on. If you're in Christ, he's holding on to you. He will hold me fast. Sometimes I think my faith will fail. I know, so do I. But he will hold me fast if I am in Christ, if that union is true. For those who believe it is. He will hold me fast. Oh, okay. So I can go out and do whatever I want to do. Live any way I want to live. Disobey everything that's honest and and pleasing to God and everything that's pure and right. I can just go blow it on all that, but he'll hold me fast. I didn't say that. Because that becomes evidence that the reality of the union with Christ is not there. Because as we said earlier in Romans, when we are in Christ, he plants that desire to honor God. That's what it means. He writes his law upon our hearts and our minds. It's no longer a legal matter. It's an internal matter. It's a power, an empowering matter by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is at work, we don't say, well, I'm going to see how much I can sin. Most of us ask that question. You know, that's kind of the, we dealt with that in our class on on mortification of sin, the license to kill last time. We, we talked about, you know, most people ask the question, how much can I sin and not get in real trouble with God? That's a, that's a dangerous question because it indicates an internal problem, not an external problem. It indicates that you know, I want to push the envelope. I want to enjoy all the world I can, but I want to stay somewhere in that safe zone. There is no safe zone except in Christ, in His presence, worshiping Him, glorifying Him, desiring to honor Him in everything I do and everything I say. And that only comes by the Word and by the Spirit. Well, pray with me.